0: Thank you for listening to audio from Century Baptist Church. To connect with us, visit our website centurybaptist.org or download the Century Baptist Church app. Thank you so much for joining us this morning for worship. Uh, My name is Ethan Johnson. I am the executive pastor here at Century, which is a good reminder for us to keep praying for Pastor Paul as he is on his sabbatical, that he continues to be filled, that his tank gets filled, and that he comes back ready to roll for whatever God has for this church next. Uh, he'll be back in December with a new Christmas series, and we're excited to have him back. But in the meantime, we continue to work through Matthew, so please turn in your Bibles to the book of Matthew. And we're going to be in chapter 9, starting in verse 27 today. As you're turning there, as I was thinking about this passage this week, I did a little research about the human eye. It's amazing, and I could spend a lot of time talking about the human eye, but a few highlights. There's over two million working parts in an eye. I had no idea. It's very, very complex. They found that there's about 256 unique characteristics in an eye as opposed to a f- fingerprint that has 40, which is why, in all the movies, they have the fancy eye scanner, because it's way more uh, it tells you more about a person. there's more ca- unique characteristics than a fingerprint. That's pretty amazing. The eye can focus on 50 different objects per second and can see 10 million different colors. If you look at my wardrobe, you'd think that I can see about five. So 10 million is pretty astounding. The only organ more complex than the eye is the brain. So first of all, let's just be in awe. In the Bible, Jesus heals people who are blind, meaning he knows everything wrong with an eye and can fix it. All the two million parts, he knows it. Isn't that amazing? Just be amazed at Jesus and his awesome power. So this passage today we're going to read is somewhat about sight, but it's more about seeing. The Bible distinguishes physical sight from spiritual sight, and today we're going to see that difference. So understanding the context of today's passage, there was tremendous messianic anticipation at the time that Jesus was doing these things, meaning they were all looking for the Messiah desperately. They hadn't heard a prophecy in 400 years. Everything was going really, really bad, about as bad as they could imagine. They were looking. It, when is the Messiah going to come? And they also had, they had clues. They had things that they, they held on to, like in Isaiah 35, that said, when the Messiah comes, he will heal the eyes of the blind. He'll, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The, uh, the lame man will leap, leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. So they were looking for this. These are the signs. Some people saw this in Jesus, other people did not. The response to Jesus was either awe or opposition. It was either worship or rejection. It was either reverence or ridicule. As we'll see today, it's very clear what God wants us to see in his word through the life of Jesus. So I'm going to read Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 27, and we're going to go through verse 34 this morning. Would you please stand as I read this passage for us today? Matthew 9, 27. And Jesus passed on from there, as he passed on, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-possessed man, who was mute, was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. You may be seated. So let's look at the passage. What was Matthew telling us here about these accounts? First of all, as Jesus was passing on, this is what he did. He taught, he walked, he taught, he walked. That was his pattern. As he was going, two blind men followed him. And crying out, have mercy on a son of David. Now, Matthew's writing this. Years later, he's going back. And I'm, I was wondering, I've always wondered, I kind of read these things, I go, you know, Matthew's writing this down. He goes, okay, Peter, you remember those two blind guys? Remember they were following Jesus and they kept tripping and following? It was like, should I put that in here? No, I shouldn't? Okay. I mean, it was literally the blind leading the blind. I, that'd be a good one. No? Okay. So Matthew doesn't tell us anything about how they were following Jesus. He says these blind guys were following him somehow. And they say, have mercy on us. Which is a plea for compassion. Uh, not in the sense we talk about judicial mercy sometimes in the sense of God not giving us the punishment that we're due because of our sin. And we contrast that with judicial grace where so mercy is God not giving us what we deserve. Grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. That's in the judicial sense of our salvation. Here, they're calling off mercy for, for his compassion. They have compassion on us. Would you please heal us? Son of David. Now, they called him Son of David on purpose because, according to Second Samuel 7, the Davidic covenant, the Messiah would come from the line of David. He would be a Son of David. Now, this is the first time in Matthew that anyone calls Jesus the Son of David. Now, in Matthew 1, verse 1, Matthew says this is this whole book is about Jesus, the son of David, and then he goes through that genealogy showing us that he descended from David. But no one had ever called him that before. So This is the first time. It shows up again in chapter 12, 15, 20, 21. People start getting the idea, is this, could this be the son of David? Are you the son of David? Is he the son of David, they say. It was, it was a source of hope for the people, but it triggered the Pharisees big time. The blind men, all they were doing was they remembered Isaiah And if he's the Messiah, then he heals blind people. So let's give it a shot. Why not? The Pharisees were ferociously defending, how dare you call him the son of David? So it says he entered the house, the blind men came in, and Jesus said, do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they said, yes. Why did they go in the house? A lot of people have spent a lot of time trying to just, what did that mean, going into the house? Well, there could be a good explanation, but really, in God's providence, Jesus did some miracles publicly and some miracles privately. Based on the context, based on the situation, what would give most glory to God and advance his kingdom the most is what Jesus did. Sometimes it was public, sometimes it was private. My guess is that he took them away from the commotion, away from the noise, the distractions. He wanted them to meet their healer face-to-face, not just cry out to him, and have Jesus heal him from across the road. Uh, He wanted to see them see. And he just says, do you believe? He just wants a simple test. Is there any faith here? And they say yes, which is good. I'm glad Matthew put that. It'd be a, a plot twist if they said, well, we'd like to see your credentials. Are you qualified to heal us of our blindness? No, they just said yes. Simple response of faith he touched their eyes and said according to your faith be it done to you sometimes Jesus touched those he healed he touched this blind these blind guys he touched the leper sometimes he didn't touch he would just speak sometimes he would spit on mud on dirt and make it mud and put it on their eyes sometimes he would command them to do something and on their way they were healed Sometimes he just thought about it. Sometimes he wasn't even in the same town. Sometimes the person he healed had tremendous faith. Sometimes, as we looked at last week, the person might have iffy faith. We're not really sure who her faith was. Sometimes they had no faith. Sometimes they were dead. When he says according to their faith, he meant in response to your faith, not based on the amount of your faith or the quality of your faith. But just that faith was present. This was not an exchange. Jesus didn't say, okay, how much faith do you have? I'm going to give you that much of a miracle. If you had more faith, I could do more. But we'll just kind of exchange here. No, it's not based on faith. It wasn't based on their faith. They had to have faith, but the healing was not because of their faith. Faith doesn't heal, God heals. Or God doesn't heal according to his will. And his will to not heal is just as good as his will to heal because he's God and we're not. God decides why and when and how the healing happens and there's so many different ways that it happens. There's no way that we can discern a formula. We try to, if I just do this and this and this, God's going to heal me. Faith doesn't heal, God heals. We put our faith in the one who is the healer and we trust him in his sovereignty that he does according to his will. And their eyes were open. it says, Jesus healed them, but he sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it. Now, why does he keep doing this? You would think he's on the mission to save the world. Wouldn't he want as many people as possible to hear about this? Why does he keep saying, don't tell anybody? I think the main point is he wants to keep the main point the main point. He knows that if they just go around saying, hey, this guy did this great trick. I couldn't see it before and now I can see. It's not the main point. The healing was permanent, meaning he actually healed. I mean, not permanent. It was real, it was complete, but it was temporary. That, those guys could see now, but it doesn't mean they weren't, that their eyes would not deteriorate over time or that they wouldn't eventually die. The healing was temporary. The healings were meant to point to the message, which was permanent. They were meant to point to Jesus himself as the gift of salvation. So he didn't want people going around just talking about just the healings. There was more to it. And so he healed these guys compassionately because they were crying out to him and he he wanted them to be healed. But then he said, see that no one knows about it because this isn't the main purpose. This isn't why I came. He came for those two men to heal them. He he did this so that others would see. It says, For those who have eyes to see and ears to hear, that they would know he's the Messiah. But he also healed these guys for us. So that when we read this, we see and know without a doubt he is the Messiah, fulfilling all the prophecies that were told about him hundreds of years before. And what do they do? This guy just took away their blindness they couldn't see before, now they can see, and the first thing they do is completely disobey him and disregard everything he says. Nice. It doesn't mean that they just, like, went, walked home, and just told people on the way. It says they went to the whole district, meaning they went out of their way to tell people about what Jesus did. Completely missing the point. Well, yeah, but, I mean, they're spreading the word about Jesus. They're, they're worshiping Jesus. They're saying, this guy healed us. Isn't that amazing? Jesus isn't after fame. Jesus would have been more glorified if they just went home. He would have been more glorified if they obeyed. See, we can't worship Jesus on our own terms based on what we think he would like. He said, the true worshipers worship in spirit and truth. Yeah, there's a spirit. There's emotion. There's response. But there's also truth. It needs to be based on truth and obedience. So, that's why Jesus, when he told them, just go home. That's how he would have been most glorified. So as they went, as they were left, then they brought, people brought this demon-possessed man, the demon-oppressed man who was mute. Notice Matthew's order here. He keeps, he does this, and last week and this week, he talks about a person with a simple expression of faith. Last week, gives was this woman who just said, I just want to grab his shirt and hopefully I'll be healed. This week it's these two guys are calling out desperate, would you heal us, son of David? And he follows both of those stories with people who have no faith, who can't express faith at all. Last week it was the girl who was dead. This week it's a guy who can't talk. Can't, we, we think that also he couldn't speak. He couldn't speak or hear. So he can't offer any expression of faith. Helpless. Hopeless. It says that the muteness was because of the demons. Now, not all muteness, not all people who are mute was because of a demon. Not all illness is because of demons. Some were, and when Jesus cast out the demon, they were healed. So I'm not going to spend a long time talking about demons, but it comes up here. Let's just review. In the beginning, God took, uh, made everything from nothing. In the beginning was God. He was the only thing that was. He's the only thing that's ever always been. Before there was everything, there was God, and he made everything. He made it good, including his angels. And at some point, Lucifer decided he didn't want to be in God's kingdom, didn't want to obey and follow God, and he left. He rejected God's authority, rebelled against him, and took a third of the angels with him and became demons. They are real. They are condemned by God, but they're active. Demons use Lies, temptation, doubt, guilt, fear, confusion, envy, pride, slander, deception, every kind of sin and destructive activity to make people ruin their lives, turn away from God, and be unfruitful for the kingdom. The, the demons try to make people blind to the gospel and keep them in bondage to sin. They have limited power, limited by God. They don't, can't read thoughts, but they can observe And they can respond, they can scheme and attempt to do everything they can to make our lives miserable. They hate God, they hate God's people, they hate Jesus, they hate Jesus' name. They know they have lost, they have read the Bible just like we have, but they're committed, completely committed to, even with believers, they know they can't have our soul but to make life miserable and make us completely ineffective and unfruitful in the kingdom of God. So, demons were very active, especially at the time of and they're active today. But keep in context and perspective, the New Testament focuses way more on fighting sin than it does on fighting demons. Sin in our lives, and the book of James says, sin comes from here. Temptation starts here. Sin in our lives is what opens the door for demons to work. They amplify or intensify sin. They make things worse. Ephesians 4:26 says, Don't let your anger linger because your anger will give an opportunity for the devil, essentially an open door. They'll put a foot in the door, and that's where they can work. So the real focus, the real concern first is on sin in your life. That's what the New Testament talks about more. They've, there's very few verses, of verses about spiritual warfare, and there's many, many, many verses about spiritual discipline. The focus is way more on obedience and holiness and righteousness and faith. 1 John 5 says we know that everyone who has been born of God, who has been saved by God and born again, does not keep on sinning. He's not saying they stop sinning. It means they don't continue in patterns of sin. That the Holy Spirit at work in those who have been saved continues to work to kill sin and the patterns of sin and to walk in more and more righteousness. They don't continue in sin, but He was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. So as there is less and less sinning, there's less and less opportunity for the evil one to make havoc in their life. 1 Peter 5, verse 8, Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Peter reminds us the enemy is real. Satan is real. His demons are real. They're trying to devour you. What does Peter say is how we respond. Verse 9, resist him firm in your faith. Okay? Our faith, walking in faith and righteousness is how we resist the work of the roaring lion. He could have listed a dozen things of how you deal with demons in your life, but he says resist resist him through your faith. Even the armor of God in Ephesians 6 he says, we're supposed to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. How? With truth and righteousness. The gospel, faith, salvation, the word of God, prayer. This is spiritual discipline focused on our own righteousness. That's how he says you fight against the schemes of the devil. Now, there is a passage that's very helpful in 2 Corinthians 10. It does talk a little bit more specifically about spiritual warfare. But what does it say in 2 Corinthians 10, starting in verse 3? For though we walk in the flesh, we don't wage war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have the divine power to destroy strongholds. So we have spiritual power to destroy strongholds. What are those strongholds? He tells us, verse 5, we destroy arguments, every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God we take every thought captive to obey Christ being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete so the strongholds of the enemy that Paul tells us to fight against are arguments and opinions and thoughts and obedience that's the fo- that's the battleground of our spiritual warfare it's here and here Paying attention to what's here is the first step. Most of the Christian spiritual warfare is spiritual disciplines, fighting sin, not focusing overly on fighting against demons. Our main concern is killing sin and walking in holiness. So, as I said, demons do exist. They are at work. They're trying to make things complicated and make things worse and amplify any sin so it's, it's real. If you discern, and I use that word carefully, spiritually discern, that there could be more to this. You're talking with someone, you're thinking about, man, it's just, ugh. There could be something else going on here. It could be demonic activity. Now, you don't need to go into some fancy exorcism. Don't follow what the movies say. That's not how it works. If you discern that, just remember what's true here about spiritual discipline and spiritual warfare. We name the sin, meaning identify specifically, call out the sin, and then name a truth that kills that sin. If it's anger, if there's anger in you or in someone you're working with, then remember the, tr- the, the promise from James, be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to become anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness God desires. And respond with the promise that God will wants you to walk in righteousness. You rebuke the sin and walk in truth. Colossians 2.15 assures us that Jesus has disarmed the rulers and authorities. They hate him. They hate the victory he's won. They hate his name. In 1 John 4, it talks about how any spirit that does not follow, follow God is not of God. If it's a demon, it cannot acknowledge that Jesus is the son of God, that he came in the flesh, that he is the Lord. So we use, that's why we pray in the name of Jesus with his power and his authority If we do that, praying for him to help us, cleanse us of our sin, to walk in righteousness, and use his name to rebuke any work of the devil. The danger, of course, is thinking too much about demons or thinking too little. Thinking too much causes us to be obsessed and can tend to lead people to shift the blame from themselves to someone else. It's somebody else's fault if it weren't for that demon. Of course, Thinking too little causes us never to think about how Satan is at work trying to destroy the work of the church and individual Christians to advance his kingdom, God's kingdom, and God's message. So stand firm in the truth and what we know and in the name of Jesus. So he says, When the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke proof that he'd been healed. He couldn't speak, now he can speak. And the crowds marveled. Never has anything like this been seen in Israel. The people's response actually amplified the contrast between Jesus and the Pharisees. The Pharisees taught all the time, but when they taught, people felt oppressed. They used guilt. They used accusations. They would berate them. They would pile more and more rules on them to remind them of how bad they were and how good the Pharisees were at following rules. Jesus came and was teaching freedom. He was healing people. There was joy he was giving them hope. He was showing compassion. He was wise. He spoke with the authority that no one else had ever spoken with. That's why the Pharisees responded the way they did. But the Pharisees said, He cast out demons by the prince of demons. Wah, wah. The Pharisees were practicing the ancient scientific method, which is if it looks like a duck and talks like a duck and walks like a duck, it's obviously a zebra. Jesus was right in front of them, and they missed it. Now, this isn't the only time that the Pharisees accused him of casting out demons by the work of demons. We'll get in a few months into Matthew 12, where Jesus heals a a demon-possessed man, and the people said, Can this be the son of David? And the Pharisee says, "Uh Uh-uh. It's by the work of Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that he casts out demons. And there, Jesus just looks at him and says, Guys, You're saying that I'm coming trying to advance the purposes and goals of Satan by undoing all of the works of Satan? That doesn't make sense, and you know it. We'll get there in a few months. But Jesus just refutes it completely. They couldn't deny his character. They couldn't deny his miracles. They couldn't refute his teaching. They were frustrated, and they were triggered. Initially, early on in Jesus' ministry, they tried to just discredit him. They were like, Isn't this Jesus? Like, we know how he came to be born. Yep, all these stories. And they tried to say, no, Don't listen to him. He's nothing. Well, they couldn't do that any longer because everyone was paying attention to Jesus. Now, see, here's, here's what they were trying to do. In Jewish law, practicing magic by the work of Satan was punishable by stoning. They weren't trying to discredit him, they were trying to kill him. It was getting serious. The blind guys saw Jesus for who he was. The Pharisees were the ones who were blind. They knew the prophecies better than anybody. They had memorized huge portions of the Old Testament, and they still missed him. Well, they didn't miss him. They saw him. They rejected him. So someone did a count of about 456 references to Jesus in the Old Testament. These are verses or passages or illustrations that pointed ahead to the Messiah, to pointed to Jesus. Now, a mathematician working a few years ago kind of narrowed that down with a group of people to about 48 specific, very specific re- references and prophecies that were fulfilled by Jesus. So he did some math, but he said, it's kind of, forty; it's a big number. Let's just go with eight for his mathematical. Let's pick eight prophecies. So I just picked eight to show you an illustration. So eight prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament, hundreds of years before Jesus, Jesus lived, would be that he would come from the tribe of Judah He would be a descendant of David. He would be born in Bethlehem. He'd be born of a virgin. He would heal blind, deaf, and lame people. He would enter Jerusalem on a donkey. He'd be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. And people would gamble for his clothes. These are all specific references, prophecies, from the Old Testament. We know that because that's what they were reading at the time Jesus was alive. So it happened way before he was even alive. And most of those things were things that happened by other people. It's not like Jesus was going to his checklist, okay, which f- prophecy can I fulfill today? Hap- I mean, they, they gambled for his clothes while he was on the cross. Okay, so he took these eight, and he said, what are the chances that w- one man could fulfill eight of these prophecies? And here's the illustration. It would be this number I'm going to put up on the screen. I don't know what it's called, but it's 10 to the 17th power. This means if you took a silver dollar Uh, and you covered the state of North Dakota with that many silver dollars, it would be seven and a half feet tall, okay, over the whole state. The chances of one man fulfilling just these eight prophecies is as if you marked one silver dollar, threw it in the mix, and shook it all up, and you put a guy on the border of South Dakota, and you you put a blindfold on him, and said, you can go anywhere in the state, seven and a half feet thick of silver dollars, and you bend over and pick up the right one. That's the chances of just eight of them. I remember there was 48 specific ones. You know what that number is? That's this. I don't even know what to call this. They knew it. They saw him doing these things. These guys were going through the checklist in their minds. He did this and this is, uh-oh, This we can't let him do this. And they rejected him. There's no doubt. I hope this grows your faith a little bit this morning because it does mine. There's no doubt. We know who Jesus was and what he was doing. So what do we need to learn from this? What do we need to see? First of all, faith determines how we see. It's more than just blind people seeing. It's showing that spiritually blind people are having their hearts, the eyes of their hearts opened to the wisdom and hope of Jesus. The blind men saw Jesus through the lens of the prophecies of Isaiah. The Pharisees saw Jesus through the lens of their own ambition and value and priority. It's a different Worldview. Your worldview is how you see the world. Faith gives us a biblical worldview. Hebrews eleven talks about this. We have faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, and the conviction of things not seen. Then he says, "By faith we understand the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible." The way we're supposed to see the universe is is God through God's eyes. God, the biblical worldview, begins with God and depends upon his revelation through his word and Jesus Christ. Faith allows us to see things the way God sees them. And walking with God in the truth changes the way we think about everything. So it should be our goal to continually develop and refine a biblical worldview so we can see the world the way God does, care most about what God cares most about, obey and follow Jesus, and love people the way that God loves them. This is how he wants us to see everything. This is the worldview we need to take. So what does faith actually do? Faith determines what we do. Faith is at the core of what we see and the means by which we live. And I just, I know this is going to be way fast, but let me just give you a snapshot of all the things that the Bible tells us to do by faith. Here they are. We're saved by grace through faith. We receive righteousness through faith. We receive redemption through faith. We're justified by faith. We have access to grace by faith. We remain steadfast through any trial by faith. We steward the mission of God through faith. We walk in faith. We live by faith. We fight the good fight in faith. We inherit the promises of God through faith. We please God with what we do and our actions by faith. We proclaim the gospel in faith. We pray in faith and overcome the world by faith. This is what Paul said so clearly at the beginning of the book of Romans. What's the book of Romans about? Romans 1, 16 and 17. I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God to everyone who believes, who has faith. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, meaning from faith, We see the righteousness of God through faith and for faith, meaning the righteousness of God living through us happens through faith. For it is written, the righteous will live by faith. This is how God in his providence has chosen for us to join him, by having faith in him. It determines everything we do. It's at the foundation and the root of our entire life, walking with God through faith. It also, faith determines how we discern. Spiritual discernment or biblical discernment is how a believer distinguishes between right and wrong or good and bad, uh, righteousness and evil, the work of God or the work of Satan. There's a warning here. The, the Pharisees attributed the work of God to Satan, which is a no no. And we're warned very carefully to avoid attributing the work of God to Satan. But also, the New Testament says that we're not to believe everybody just because they say they're from God. There's two extremes. You believe everybody or you believe nobody. We need discernment to accompany our faith. Now, one thing, we we can't assume that it's going to be difficult to discern when Jesus comes back. They had a tough time looking at Jesus and seeing him for who he was. When he comes back again, there's going to be no question. He's going to come in the sky. There'll be lightning from the east to the west, no question. So it's not the same issue as they had. But people are going to try anyway. If you read through what's going to happen, they're going to say, hey, look, the Christ is out there in the field. Go listen to him. He's over here. He's over here. And the Bible says, "Uh -uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. You're not going to miss him. You're going to know when he comes. But people are going to try. So in that sense, what we're going to have to wrestle with is the opposite. At that time, at Jesus' time, they were looking for the Messiah. And the people saw him because they knew what the Bible said about him. But the Pharisees said, "Uh uh-uh, it's not him. Before Jesus comes back, everyone's going to, he's over here, he's over here, this must be Jesus, or this is kind of like God. Uh-uh. No, and the church has to say, uh-uh, you'll know when you see it, you'll know when you see it, there'll be no question. But the danger, of course, is, in our discernment, is we've got to make sure we don't miss what he's doing now, the work he's doing now, by being closed off or thinking that he can only work in a certain way, or a way we're comfortable with or familiar with. How do we know? Because not everyone who says they're a Christian is a Christian. Not not everyone who says they're doing something for God is actually doing it for God. And not everyone who actually says they follow Jesus really knows the real Jesus. So what do we do? The first step is simple. We just look. Does it line up with God's Word? Is what we see actually line up with God's Word? And the next one is, does it glorify God or glorify something else or somebody else? You'll know immediately if what's happening is glorifying God or if it's glorifying someone else. And we know that because of the fruit. What is the fruit of what's happening? We use the discernment, the spiritual discernment God gives us to understand and discern what is good and bad from God or not from God by just evaluating if it comes, if it's in the Word, if it glorifies God, and we look at the fruit, does it point people to Jesus? If we see things the way God sees them and walk in his righteousness, we will be able to discern his work around us. The Bible makes a big deal about faith. We're supposed to hold fast fast to our faith, contend for our faith, live our lives by faith. But faith, church, is not just blind trust in the face of contrary evidence. It's not wishful thinking. It's not a vague hope. Just, I hope things are going to get better. And it's not an ignorant leap in the dark. Faith is belief with complete trust. It's, faith is resting in the power of God over all creation. Faith is a settled confidence that what God says he will do and is true. Faith is a confident trust in the all-powerful, infinitely wise, and impeccably trustworthy God who has re- revealed himself to us through his word that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, that we can know him and trust him and follow him. And he wants our faith to grow. He wants our faith to grow. And the way that our faith grows is if God grows. I don't mean that God actually gets bigger. I mean we see him bigger. And as we look at how he's revealed himself to us in the word and how he's working all around us, he gets bigger to us. And as God gets bigger to you, your faith will grow stronger in him. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful for this this morning. Thank you for things that show us that help us see you as being bigger to us, and thank you for having the compassion to to let our faith grow when we see things about you that are undeniable. Thank you for helping us to see what is true. What is real? Thank you for showing us your truth and your word. And thank you for giving us light in the darkness. When we feel the fog moving in, doubt, someone disagrees with us, makes fun of us, argues with us. Help us have the courage to hold fast to the light of the gospel in the face of any darkness or fog, to shine brightly for you, to burn through that confusion to what is true. And that as we do this, we see your power and your glory displayed that our faith would grow so that whatever comes at us, we don't fear, but we care most about what you care about. Your name, your glory, and your kingdom. Help us walk faithfully with you every day. Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen.